Now we're going to go in a slightly different direction than we thought we were going to go in today uh, because this was supposed to be Q&A Sunday and uh, we were set with lots of A's and we didn't get any Q's. So I'll say we got, we got some good questions from two of you. So I thank both of you uh, for those questions and we will answer those towards the end of our discussion today. So what I'd like to do is this. I, I, I prayed about the best way to kind of wrap up this series. Lord, what would you have us do? And how do we wrap this up, but also address these questions that were raised. And the Lord, I believe, is leading us back to where we left off in the third chapter of John, because what happens next is actually fascinating. We weren't even going to cover it, but it's fascinating and it ties back to the whole thing. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, your phones, whatever you use, you open up your Bibles to John chapter 3. I'm going to quickly summarize a scene that happens next, and then we're going to spend most of our time concentrating on the very last verse of the chapter, which is a doozy. All right. We've made our way to verse 22. Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, which we've been talking about all for six, seven weeks, this has now ended. The scene shifts and Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem. They head out into the countryside where they spend some time baptizing the crowds. The crowds are just building every day. More and more people are coming to hear Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're baptizing. What we find out is that at the same time, John the Baptist is, is also there. You remember John the Baptist. This isn't John the writer of this gospel. It's a different John. Uh, it was a lot of Johns back then. Uh, this is John the Baptist. He's the cousin of Jesus. This is the man who is preparing the way for Jesus. He's been baptizing. He even baptized Jesus. There's, you know, a scene that happened before this. He baptizes Jesus in the river. So John is still out there. He's baptizing with his disciples. John's got his own posse, and they're out there. So you have both ministries now kind of like overlapping, like could get awkward, like, oh, uh, like you have one church and then like another church comes with the same name, um, which actually happened. Uh, so what happens is in it, the disciples of John here, uh, they, they hear that the disciples of Jesus are baptizing right down the river and they're starting to feel threatened, Right? They're starting to feel a little jealous here. They get upset. And it says in verse 26, they come to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan to whom you testified. I think it's interesting here. They, they got to know Jesus' name, but they don't even want to say his name. Uh, there's like that guy, you know, here he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John, do something, right? Everyone's going over there. Nobody cares about us anymore. And I know this is going to be really hard to believe, but religious people can be very competitive, right? It's true. We can get really competitive. And in this case, you can really understand why. With the followers of John here, the stakes are high. I mean, you're talking about eternity. You're dealing with issues of life and death. This is everything here. It's huge. And so, and these guys, if you've committed to a path, you know what it's like you know, either this church or a different church that you've gone to, you've, you've felt that sense of loyalty too. You know what it's like to feel that kind of loyalty to something. There's, you have, you're on this path, you have a mentor, there's a ministry that you love and you believe that path is right and true and you're on that thing and you give it your all, you give it your heart. And this is true for the disciples of John the Baptist. He's doing a very groundbreaking thing uh, in the world. They had poured themselves into this, proclaiming the message of repentance, the baptism for repentance. That was the specific ministry of John. They had probably faced persecution for this. They had probably left family and riches and, you know, uh, privileges that they said no to, to deny themselves so they could. And now it's winding down. This, this whole thing is winding down, but it's, it's winding down for a great cause so that Christ can now move front and center. And, but you know what? It's hard to let go of something that God has called you to, right? And it's not like they were doing the wrong thing. God had called them to this, and it's hard to let go of that thing that God has used you in for a while. And boy, the, the, the parallels are, can really apply to us here. Ministry is messy, that is just a fact that anybody who starts to dabble in ministry finds out. Ministry is messy, right? Because people are messy. We're not angels. And people are messy. Ministry is messy. Um, and it just fascinates me that God, even through all of that, he still chooses people to proclaim his message. 
He still calls us. He still calls all us imperfect, messy people to proclaim his message. He doesn't call angels to do this. He doesn't just come down and like do it himself, which would make it really efficient. That seems like that would be really efficient. Lord, you know, he uses us. Why? Because he is relational and he just is. He's just a relational God. It's so beautiful and the parallels can so apply to us. There there are times in our lives where um, we are called to a certain ministry or we might have a certain mission. Or you, you might just have something that God has told you to do for today and it, you're in that season and it's awesome. But the day may come to move on to the next thing. And the ministry of John the Baptist was fantastic and now it's coming to an end. And John the Baptist has to remind his own disciples here. It's really beautiful if you read through it. of What he has been telling them all along. He's been telling them in the verses that follow 27 and onward. He uses the analogy of a wedding. Uh, and that's a recurring theme we see in the New Testament. This, the bride of Christ and how Christ is like the bridegroom and we're the bride. The church is the bride. John, John the Baptist has to tell his his friends, he's like, guys, listen, this is the bridegroom coming. Finally, he's coming to gather the bride. I was never the bridegroom. I'm not the groom. I've told you this. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I'm like the best man. That's what John is. And the best man at the wedding finds joy in his friend's happiness. He says, guys, I'm not here to steal my, my friend's woman. No. These people are becoming the bride of Christ. And he uses the word joy and rejoice a couple of times in this. In fact, the, the literal Greek here is he rejoices with joy. It's like purposefully redundant. He rejoices with joy. He says, I don't begrudge this happening. I'm finding, I'm finding my joy in the exaltation and the lifting up of Jesus. His becoming front and center. Such a beautiful, beautiful reminder to all of us that we are not the point of all of this. Nothing even here is the point. He is the point. Jesus is what this is all about. And then he says this beautiful final word in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. These are the final words of John the Baptist in this gospel here. He must increase, but I must decrease. At this point, uh, the thread is picked up by John the gospel writer the other John, uh, not John the Baptist, who begins speaking and he reflects on this scene um, as well as what Jesus said earlier. And so as we get into the other verses here, the writer goes on to talk about the beauty of Jesus, how, how beautiful he is and how we can trust this gospel message because Jesus is unlike any religious leader or spiritual leader or prophet or guru who's ever come because this is the, this is the only one who's ever come from heaven and then been born on earth. Um, He's unlike any human being who's ever lived. I would love to talk about this some more. Maybe we'll come back someday and talk about this. This is, this is good. I want to get on to the next thing. But he speaks about the great love of the Father for the Son. And then the chapter ends with a verse that we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, unpacking here today. Because it is so important and potentially very explosive. And that is verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, and that's that Zoe life, that eternal life, abundant kingdom life, but must endure God's wrath. There's so much to see here. Uh, first of all, first of all, we see this, that a theme again of eternal life starting now. Notice he says, uh, whoever believes has eternal life. Not you will have it in the sweet by and by when you die someday, you get to go to heaven with angels and harps and stuff like that. No, no, no. You have it now. Eternal life, abundant, everlasting life, kingdom life starts now. The kingdom is here. And it comes through faith, through trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. But then he says, but whoever disobeys. Well, that's interesting. You notice that? He doesn't say whoever does not believe. He says whoever disobeys. Look at what's contrasted. Believing and then disobeying. The Greek word for that can also mean to be in rebellion against, to, to be disloyal. And there's several places in the New Testament that we could look at where the opposite of believing in Christ isn't described as not believing. It's described as disobeying. There's like an active rejection here of what he's, is what he's talking about. It's not just an ignorance. 
you know, of you're, you're the guy in the jungle who never heard of Jesus. Not just in ignorance, you don't know anything about Jesus or, or going through a little season of doubt or something like that where you're not sure about stuff. It, it's not one's mental certainty that is actually on trial here. It's a matter of actively disobeying. In fact, this gives us a, leads us to a really good definition for faith, for what faith is. The scriptural view of faith is always more than just thinking something. It's more than just being mentally convinced of something. We can, uh, uh, some of us were raised with this idea that faith is just like a mental certainty, like, oh, I'm certain, I'm certain, I'm certain. And, and we don't let ourselves become uncertain, right? And that could even become an idol. It can, you can make an idol of certainty. What we find here is that faith is active trust. If you had to put it in two words, it'd be active trust. It is trusting enough, trusting Jesus enough to do the next thing. Active trust, enough to do the next thing, right? It's putting it into action, putting that trust in Jesus into action. We're even told in the Bible, did you know that Satan, uh, we're told by, I think it's James, the brother of Jesus, he says that Satan believes in Jesus, right? By that definition, Satan should be saved, right? No, he believes in Jesus. He believes he's true, but he doesn't act toward what he knows. In fact, it's a, you know, we're, we're told that Satan acts against it. He rebels against it. And so saving faith, biblical faith that leads to salvation is, is faith that takes action. Like, like the children of Israel we looked at a, a few weeks ago, you know, when, when the snakes came into the camp and God said, we'll create the, uh, the bronze serpent so that they can look at it. And if they look at it, they'll be healed from that thing. Well, those children of Israel, they got bit by a snake. They could have said, okay, I'm bitten by a snake. And yeah, I believe that if I turn to that serpent, I'll be saved. I believe it. But until they actually do it, until they actually turn, nada will happen, right? Nothing. So saving faith moves forward. It's, it's based, it, it moves forward. It's based on trust, even without certainty. It is based on trust, but it doesn't just stop at mental belief. That's where a lot of Christians stop with their faith. That's just, it's just something that we see a lot today. Christians, we stop at belief. We say, well, I, I believe something's true. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I guess so. Sure. And, and we kind of stopped there. Well, I made a decision years back. Enough, enough done. Game over, right? But we see that faith is really something different. Verse 36, what it suggests here is that the opposite of faith isn't just not believing in Christ. It is disobeying the Son. It's having knowledge of something that you are rejecting. It's saying no to the tugging in your heart. That is the real opposite of faith. And then this person who rejects Christ is said to have to endure, or, or it means to undergo the process of God's wrath. Literally, it says God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath remains on him. We don't talk about wrath too much in here, if ever. I don't know if I've ever preached on wrath now in all my <clears throat> 25 years of life. <laughs> but that's some explosive language, right? We're going to talk about what this means. God's wrath remains. Let's work through this. First of all, let's talk about what is wrath. Our starting point is this. Our starting point is this. It should be this understanding that wrath is the emotional response associated with judgment. Wrath is the emotional response associated with judgment. When we speak about God's wrath, it's talking about his judgment or the divine consequences of our sin. Um, this is the divine response associated with judgment. The Greek word is orge. And it's the usual word. It's also used for anger when it's talking about people. But uh, it takes on a judgment nuance whenever it's talking about God. And that's why, by the way, it's why orge or anger is consistently said in the New Testament over and over to be a sin avoided by humans. Human beings, anger is a no-no. No orge, right? Because it's the emotion associated with judgment, right? And we are not called to be the judge. God's the judge. So that's a whole other message. But that's just the biblical facts about that. Wrath, wrong for us. It's one of the seven deadly sins, right? You can go back and listen to that sermon series from a long way a time ago. It's judgment and God is the judge. So 
question number two we might have is how does God's wrath manifest in our life? How do we see God's wrath? How does this divine judgment manifest in the world? And oh my goodness, there is a lot of goofy understanding about God and wrath today in the church. And so hopefully we can kind of chip away at that a little bit this morning. Here's where it's so crucial, I believe. This whole conversation, you just can't even get started unless you, you boil down the nature of God. God's nature, he makes it really simple for us. He boils it down in the, the fourth chapter of 1 John. He says something very complicated. God is love. Period. Full stop. God is not love plus something. No, right there, I've lost, you know, 20% of the Christian church. God is love. Love is the essence of the, of the Trinity, of the triune nature. And every attribute of God is a facet of that one diamond. It's like a stream flowing from that one spring, the spring of love, love. Anything else we say about God's holiness, which is real, about his justice, yes, about his wrath, can only be said in reference to God's love. So any idea, any, any idea of God's holiness or justice or wrath that is not love, we're not talking about God anymore. We're talking about some kind of a human compilation of that thing, right? Right? Now, let me make something really clear. We're not saying that God is not holy, that God is not righteous. He is all these things. See, we want to put things in human terms. We want to say, well, he's like 70% love and 60% holy. And like we have these buckets that God has to fill up to a certain point and he can't go over that, you know, and this kind of thing. No, 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 no. We're not saying that. He is holy. He is righteous. But with God, he is these things infinitely. And there is never a case where God's holiness stands in opposition to his love. We can't fathom that, right? But that's never the case. God's never going, I'm holy. I don't know what to do because I'm also loving. What do I do? What should I do? No. But on the other hand, we cannot deny the reality of God's wrath. It's right here in Scripture. We can't just say, oh, no, no, it doesn't exist. It's right there. But our challenge is that we can't help loading this word down with all of our human baggage. We have so much baggage with this word wrath. Am I right? It's tainted by our own displays of wrath. Uh, which are, we are told in Scripture, sinful. That's just what it is, right? Well, that's not fair. He gets to be wrathful, and I, yeah, he's God. Um, so if you say, well, boy, Scott poured out his wrath yesterday or something like that, right? Well, what does that mean? That means I finally lost my temper. I blew my top. I went medieval on somebody, right? I just, it finally happened. And, uh, that, but you know what? That wouldn't be a sign of my power, it wouldn't be a sign of my strength, of my righteousness. Scott really displayed his righteousness yesterday with his wrath. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be a sign of my virtue. It would actually be a sign of my weakness. If I display wrath, it's a sign of my weakness. Human wrath always betrays our frailty. My wife and I were just talking about this the other day with our kids. You know, sometimes, you, you guys with kids, you know, sometimes they stretch you to that limit. It's never like our proudest moment when I raise my voice and I lose it, right? No, no, that's my weakest moment. That's my worst moment as a, as a parent. That, that's not me displaying my righteousness finally to my kids. I'm displaying my frailty, my desperate search for validation. When we lose our cool, it's not our strength, but our weakness that's on display. That's just what it is, anger, wrath. God's wrath is something we have a harder time than understanding because it's not him losing his temper. We just assume whenever we read this in scripture, ooh, God lost his temper. No, it's never him losing his temper and it's never him moving outside of the realm of love. It's never God going, okay, I've tried love. That doesn't work. God's wrath is an expression of his love. All right, just stay with me. I know some of this is like, this is, I can't. Just stay with me. Because here's the thing. With God, nothing is not an expression of his love. Nothing is not an expression of his love. Now, one way um, that we see God's love manifest 
over and over. We've talked about this a lot over the last year or so, is that he allows us to be choice makers, right? We're made in the image of God. Scott, you keep talking about this. We are divine image bearers. That means we are made in his image. We're made in his image. He grants us the dignity of decision. God grants you the dignity of your decisions. Sometimes we wish he wouldn't, right? God just make people do stuff, right? Because they're acting like idiots, right? But he grants us the dignity of our decisions. That's that image bearer of the divine. Let's look at an example. Uh, most of you probably know, remember the story of the Israelites in Egypt. Before they came out of Egypt, the plagues, Charlton Heston, that whole thing, right? The whole story of the Israelites in Egypt. And uh, the whole scene, God sends Moses to Pharaoh to tell them, let my people go. And it mentions, you remember that phrase, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh? He hardened Pharaoh's heart. That raises a lot of philosophical conundrums for folks, right? If you're like me, that, that, if you're paying attention, because it's kind of like the hardening of the heart, that sounds kind of unfair, doesn't it? Uh, it raises the question, why is God sending Moses to the Pharaoh, telling him to let my people go, when God's then hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go? Uh, is God just playing games with us? Are we just like dolls, you know, that he's controlling? Is he the puppet master? What is happening here? What's easy to miss is we often focus on the Hebrew text where it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Did you know an equal number of times in the scripture, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart? There's about 20 mentions in that whole story, 20 uh, of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. 10 of them are of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Exactly 10 of them are of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And so as Pharaoh continues to choose hard-heartedness, what we see is that God partners with this. And so God's wrath here is really to confirm, affirm, and strengthen what Pharaoh is already choosing. That is the hardening of the heart. It's what Pharaoh was already choosing. That's the, def- that's the form of that divine wrath begins to take right here in the middle of the story of Israel. And in fact, the word in the Hebrew for harden is to strengthen or shore up. To strengthen. God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. So the form of God's wrath that begins in the world right now even is that when I choose to walk away from Jesus, when I, what I find is, is that more and more I, he gives us over to that decision. He grants us the dignity of our decisions. Another example we can point to is in Paul's letter to, to the Romans. In the New Testament, Paul starts off talking about God's wrath in Romans chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. So this is interesting. The, the, key, the truth is something that they know and they're pushing it deep down. It's like they're repressing it through their choices to move contrary to what they know is the best direction. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. This is the testimony of nature, the testimony of creation. It's like the book of nature. Some scholars talk about the, we have the book of scripture and we have the book of nature. They both testify of God. And what does he say? So they are without excuse for though they knew God. Now get this, boy, in this passage, this will mess with you. The context here is Paul is talking about a group of pagan idol worshipers. He's not talking about like Christian backsliders here. These are pagan idol worshipers. He's, he's, it's, they are people who were raised in a totally different religion. But he still says, although they knew God, so there's no like excuse of ignorance here. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It's fascinating. There's something about God. There's something about God that everybody in some way can discover through creation, through our own internal wiring, through the the continual tugging of the Holy Spirit within us, which is what he is always doing. Remember what we read a couple of weeks ago um, that uh, just to remind you, John chapter one, Jesus says he is, uh, let's see, there we are. 
Jesus says, he is the light that gives light to everybody. John chapter 12, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, in other words, he's talking about his crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. In John chapter 16, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world, the whole world about sin, righteousness, judgment here. So scripture reinforces this over and over and over, this idea that everyone is having some kind of encounter through the Holy Spirit's conviction, through their conscious conscience, through the conviction of Jesus Christ, the drawing of Christ. And they're either walking toward saying yes to that, becoming receptive to when they do hear the gospel taught to them, or they're already saying no, that there's something inside that's saying no to what they sense to be true. And only God can really know and judge the heart perfectly. We, that's why we are not to judge. We are not to judge because we can't say, oh, well, you've you're on this team and you're on that team. Only God can do that. But God knows who's already saying yes and who's already saying no. And you know what else is interesting? In the same Romans passage, it goes on to talk about the way that God's wrath is revealed. Three times, three times in the rest of the chapter, it uses the phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over, just like Pharaoh. There's that hardening of the heart, the dignity of our decisions that he gives us. When we stubbornly persist to say no to what we somehow know to be true. Uh, eventually, God just kind of pulls a Burger King and says, have it your way, right? That's it. That's all right. God gives us over to our choices. You know what? I, I can't claim to know the mind of God. No shock to anybody. Um, but I will say this. This is sort of Scott 316. This is gospel according to Scott. Um, when I think about wrath in the Bible, what I, what I think about is I see wrath. I believe that God looks like Jesus, first of all. And so I start from that standpoint. I believe that God is love. I believe that God looks like Jesus. I believe that much of even the divine violence that we attribute to God I believe that what we are actually seeing is the cause and effect relationship of sin and destruction, what it looks like played out. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. It's like there's some kind of natural law going on in the universe. The wages of sin is death. And, and that's not because God, when you sin, God's waiting to pay you back by killing you, right? He's not like, oh, I'm, I'm going to pay you back. What, he, what it tells me is that the wages, the end result of sin is death. It's a universal law God put into effect. And we bring judgment on ourselves when we refuse to humble ourselves before God. Amen. When we commit sexual sin, we seek sexual sin in the world. It leads to disease and broken homes, right? God doesn't have to strike anybody with that. Uh, we, we get into greed. It leads to inequality and climate change and racism and all kinds of things like that, right? God doesn't have to strike us with that. These are the natural effects. You know, we, we lie when we, just all kinds of stuff. There are natural effects to our sin. The wages of sin, it just is death. That's the judgment that we live in. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, that all of us kind of exist. We're in the judgment line. We just exist in that that judgment, that condemnation, what Jesus offers is to pull us out of that line. He offers us freedom from that, right? Nevertheless, having said that, never forget that God is love and every attribute, every action of God flows from that fact. So even the judgment, even the wrath of God, even when he gives some over to their choices, when he hardens their wills, never believe for a moment that he is doing it in a way that we would recognize uh, in human terms, like human vindictiveness, right? Or just to punish and torture people because he's just finally had enough and he's so mad. He's just given up. The divine judgment that people experience in this life, I believe it has one goal, and that is to rescue us from our sin, Amen. to compel us to come home. What else does the story of the prodigal son teach us, right? Look at what happens there. I mean, the, 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 the younger son, he goes off and he squanders everything, and how does he end up? He ends up Poor, broke, starving, living with pigs. Well, that wasn't the, the father didn't have to throw him into the prison of pigs and take away his money. That was the wages of his sin. But what happened out of that? It compelled him to come home. It compelled him to come home, right? And so even as God, this is encouraging to me, even as God gives us over to our choices, he never stops pursuing. 
And that's a beautiful thing to remember for all of those, our friends and our family and people that we love, he never stops pursuing. Even as he gives us over to our choices, he never stops pursuing. One time there was a man in the New Testament church we read about who had gotten into some pretty horrific sin. We won't go into it because there might be kids here. It's pretty gross stuff with people he shouldn't have been doing stuff with. And Paul has this moment where he's instructing the rest of the church what to do because these, the church was kind of like trying, you could tell they were trying to be loving. And so they were sort of coddling this man and they were sort of like patting him on the back, like, it's okay because we love you. And here's what he says to the church. He says, hand this man over to Satan. Wow. In other words, let him go. Let him, let him leave for the destruction of the flesh. That sounds harsh, but what is he talking about? The wages of sin right? The destruction of the flesh. But why? Because we don't like him and we're better than him. Nope. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's saying, this guy, I have it on the right one, right? Okay, good. He's saying, this guy's going to, his sin is going to end up hurting him. It's just going to end up hurting him. And you've tried, you've tried to bring him back. You know, you've done, tried to do all those things. But we can pray that it ends up leading to his repentance, right? God loves because he is love. He is love. He cannot but love. Even in his judgment, his wrath is not an attribute that exists alongside his love. He doesn't have to pick between judgment and love. It is love. And this is important. Because sometimes we want to say, well, don't take the loving thing too far. Right? We get uncomfortable with it. I understand. I mean, yeah, God's loving, but don't take that too far because he's also righteous. He's also righteous. But no, no, no. God's judgment is an expression of his love. And therefore, we can trust him completely. We can trust him. We can be at peace because, praise God, he is God and we are not. I'm so happy with that. Amen. Um, I want to take a moment uh, before we, we close this thing out and and answer a couple of the questions that we did receive. They were really good, and they actually, here's what's cool, is they actually relate to what we've been talking about today. The first questioner asked this, if Jesus didn't come to judge us, but to save us, you remember way back from one of the first weeks, Jesus says, I have not come to judge or condemn, but to save, right? And if judgment for non-believers is already happening now, we already exist in that that situation of judgment, we kind of exist in that. Then what is judgment day for, was the question. What's judgment day for? If, if he saved us from judgment and people are already, if they're going to be judged, they're already being judged. What is judgment day for? It's a really good question. Because, and here's what else makes it interesting. In John chapter 5, Jesus teaches one of my uh, favorite, uh, one of my favorite truths of all times. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged or condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. Woo! That's good news. That is great news. Yeah, if we trust in Jesus, we've begun our eternal life now. We've already crossed over from death to life. It means there's no judgment in our future. Hook them. That's awesome. We will not be judged. We've begun our eternal life. But wait a minute. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Hmm. So is Paul right? Or is Jesus right? Yes. <laughs> Here's an example where uh, we use different words in different ways, different contexts. And the judgment that Paul is talking about here is a judgment of works, uh, sometimes thought called the, the bema seat. Uh, you might see that term. This judgment of works that Christians will give an account for how we live our lives, what we do in the body, the works that we do in the body. So yes, how we live actually matters. Amen. It matters. Our deeds will be assessed. Praise the Lord. Right? That's good news if you're doing good deeds, right? It's kind of sobering news if you haven't been doing anything, right? But notice this isn't a judgment of our faith. It's not who had faith and who didn't, who had the most faith and who had a little bit of faith. No, no, no. It's not about salvation. This isn't about who gets into heaven or not. This is a judgment of our works. 
for believers. So this doesn't contradict or diminish the, the powerful truth of what Jesus has taught in John chapter 5. That through faith, our judgment for eternal life is already settled and sealed. Through faith, we start our eternal life now. You're living the eternal life now. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to fret about it. Through faith, we have crossed over from death to life. We are not in danger of condemnation. Praise God for that. That's amazing good news. But this should sober us up to us believers to the fact that our choices now will make a difference. Here's a few more examples just to run through them here quickly. Paul's writing to Christians here, by the way, in Romans 14. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And he goes on to say, so then each of us will be accountable to God. Jesus says this in Matthew 16. For the Son of Man, talking about himself, will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Romans chapter 2 says, God will repay everyone according to the deeds they have done. So for you, that may open up a couple more questions, right? You may wish next Sunday was Q&A Sunday, right? But that's good, right? There, there's a lot, a little bit of murky area here. I understand like, and what we actually see is that the early church and the writers, they didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about just judgment day. They didn't really obsess over judgment day. There's a few scriptures here as we see. But for the most part, what they said was Christ frees us. We are free. So now let's live for Christ. Let us live for the kingdom. Let's go share the good news. That is what they focused on. So what can, what can be our focus? But friends, we will give an account for our deeds. We will. Our eternity is secure if our faith is in Christ. But for those who don't put their faith in Christ, the scriptures talk about standing before a great white throne, before God who will judge righteously and he will judge fairly and he will determine all of our fates. But that, my friend, is his job not mine. So we can trust his love and his mercy to judge rightly, right? Because God is what? Love. love thank you. Our other question we received was, uh, was also good. It says, how does God punish people today? How does God punish people today? This is another area where language can kind of get us in trouble a little bit because we think of punishment in human terms, don't we? Right? We think about, you know, you better do this or I'm going to punish you. Right? We have, we have that thing. It's, the Constitution has punishment in it. Right? Uh, we think about ter- in human terms, which is always retributive. Retributive punishment. Right? You did this. So it's how we pay someone back for the evil they did. You did evil, so you're going to be punished for that. It's about revenge. Right? We're going to take revenge on you. Even as a society, we kind of will take revenge on somebody for the evil they did or something like that. It's about karma, right? It's about making things right in that way. Sometimes punishment has to do with satisfying uh, the victim in some way that they have been harmed by making the guilty suffer just as much, right? Because as human beings, guess what? We can't go to the victim and say, I'm going to take away all the suffering they did to you. We have that, we do not have that capability. All we can do is, I'll make them suffer just as much, And then justice is done. Yay, everybody's suffering. (laughs) Now everything's good. That's as good as we can do. That's as good as human beings can do, is make sure everybody's suffering equally, right? Because we can't remove suffering. Well, God is different. He is different. He is love. Number one, he is actually able to heal and restore the victim. So justice can happen in a whole different way. Amen. That's interesting. First John tells us this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Notice here how the love of God and fear of punishment are contrasted, right? But back to that original question. How does God punish people today? Maybe a better way we could, we could ask that is, is there any kind of, is there any sort of divine parental discipline that still exists, that, that still expresses God's love? 
Let's look at the book of Hebrews. This is a New Testament. This is New Covenant. So we're not looking at Old Testament. New Testament. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. And that word can mean son or daughter. It's for, it's for all of us. And the author goes on to describe God's discipline entirely in terms of loving correction and wise training of God's children. Because he's a good father, right? If he didn't discipline, he'd kind of be a psychopath, right? The discipline of the father, it says in verse 11, brings about a harvest of righteousness and peace in his children. So what this tells me, here's the big difference between God's discipline and human punishment, is it's always restorative. It's never retributive. He's not just seeking revenge. Oh, you got to get you back. Yeah, now you know how it feels. No, God's is always restorative. It's, it's always constructive rather than destructive. The difference between him and, us, him and us is that God's punishments are never to harm. They're never to make sure everybody's suffering equally, but they are always to grow and to restore. And what's beautiful about him is he's not only here to heal and restore the victim, to heal and restore your heart, but even the one who is guilty. What? And that messes with our sense of justice, doesn't it? But he does. He loves because he can't help but love. He wants to heal and restore the innocent victim as well as the one who is guilty. My goodness. So his discipline, his godly discipline, even in the church among his children, we may experience it. It's not because God doesn't like you anymore. It's actually because he loves you. Because he loves you. So I would say this. Is God smashing cities today with hurricanes and killing millions of people with pandemics in his wrath against the world? Has he finally had enough? You mean the same world that he said he loved so much that he came to die for, that he came to suffer humiliation out of love? for to sacrifice himself on the cross. I, I would venture to say that assigning disasters to the vindictiveness of God is blasphemy. Right. That, that does get me angry. That gets my wrath up, right? And then I got to go ask permission, uh, 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 repentant. I have to repent for it. Assigning all of these things to God makes me angry. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. And so to every email I receive from, from somebody that quotes another YouTube prophet that says, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, right? This is it. My patience has run out and my hand is about to fall in furious anger on the city of, insert here, whatever that is, whatever the new city is. I would say, my God looks like Jesus. My God loves like Jesus. My God demonstrates the mercy of Jesus, right? The same Jesus who absorbed the wrath on the cross. He is not Zeus. My God is not Zeus. He is the king of kings and the kingdom reigns in the hearts of men. Amen. He does not need to flex his muscles just to make sure everybody knows he's strong. He doesn't throw down lightning bolts or kill people. There is an enemy in the world, we are told right here, there is an enemy who is here to kill, steal, and destroy. How dare we ever assign those things to our loving Jesus. Amen. Jesus has come that we would have life. And he establishes church, you and me, that we would share that hope with the world. The hope of the gospel. That we, we are called here to reflect hope and love and good news to the world. We are not called to be Jonah, to call down the fire from heaven. That is not our calling. If, you're, if you see yourself as Jonah, I would just say, friend, you, you, you're lost in the wrong part of the Bible, right? That is, that's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant, right? We have been given a new great commission to preach the good news, Amen. the good news. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. Um, and I, I, could we go ahead and just bow our heads this morning? I want to do something. If you're sitting there, can we just reflect 
on the attitude of John the Baptist. Let's go back to John the Baptist, that friend of Jesus who was so humbly willing to stand aside, to stand to the side as, as the best man, the one who rejoices to hear the voice of the groom coming, the one who found joy in saying, he must increase, so I must decrease. Are there ever times in your life where you've noticed that there's times where you have felt so defensive, maybe, or protective of your ego, that Jesus kind of fades into the background? Maybe it's even while you're doing really good things. You might, you might be helping people. You might be evangelizing. And you find that the most important thing seems to be that you look good, that you have the clever answers to their questions, that you get noticed for your generosity, I understand. And maybe sometimes the thought of looking silly or stupid or, or not even being noticed at all, it even makes you shy away from stepping out and, and doing something for Jesus in that moment. If you have ever been guilty of that, it's okay. Just repent. Just repent. Ministry is messy. You won't do it perfectly. I sure don't, and that's okay, because God has chosen to be relational. He has chosen to partner with us. Even when your ego gets in the way, he is relational. He still wants to partner with you. Maybe today your prayer could be, Jesus, free me from myself. I pray a lot of little prayers. Some of them are ancient prayers that I've discovered from church fathers and people smarter than me. But there's one little prayer that I feel like the Holy Spirit dropped in my heart years ago, and I pray it often. And that is, Lord, empty me of the worst of me till there's nothing left but Thee. And maybe that's what we need to pray for. Lord, free me from myself. Free me from my ego. Free me from my dignity, from my need to be noticed, from my need to be proven right, from my need to be vindicated. Free me from my desire for, for those who are in the wrong to get what's coming to them instead of praying for them to grow, for them to be healed. Free me from my pettiness, my impatience with ignorant people. Make me more aware of my own ignorance. Jesus, today I want you to increase and for me to de de decrease. Because there lies true joy, true peace, and true freedom. When we pray that, when we decrease and he increases, oh, that's freedom. Or maybe some of you are here today and you might want to take that first step toward Jesus. To say, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. I don't understand it all. I still have questions, but I'm ready to take that step. I'm ready to ask forgiveness. I need freedom from myself. I need freedom from my own sins. I love what the, the dad in the Bible of the little boy who had seizures, he came to Jesus and Jesus was going to heal his little boy. And the dad just prayed so honestly, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. And I believe Jesus can. He will. Amen. Let me pray for us. Hallelujah. Father God, oh Lord, heavenly Father, I look forward this week to all of us being embraced by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, as we sense your, your drawing us closer, that we sense the conviction of your Spirit, Lord. Lord, as we move closer, as we engage with you, Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to say yes, to move in your direction, wherever it leads, not away from where you're leading. And that as we do that, we will find joy and delight in knowing that we are becoming more like Christ, that we are decreasing so you can increase, that Christ is becoming more prominent in our identity, in our thinking, and in our desires in our relationships around us, Lord God. May we become less 
self-conscious, less worried about how we come across. Help us, Lord God, that we can lose ourselves in this beautiful love relationship that you have with us. Thank you for this new life you have birthed inside so many of us, Lord God. And I thank you that you are eager, you are eager to birth that new life inside others who you are still pursuing. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, amen. Um, Our prayer partners are coming forward at this time. If there's anything you need prayer about, anything at all, I encourage you to come forward and let these beautiful people pray with you in faith, whether it's something, a financial need you have or a healing in your body or relational need. You have something going on with someone else and you just need God to help you, give you wisdom and heal the situation. He can do that. He's the healing Jesus. And so come down, let these fine people pray with you. If you want to say yes to Jesus today, come down and let them pray with you today. They would love to take that next step with you. Uh, If you want to send us a prayer request, make sure you do that. We have lots of different ways you could do that. See it on your screen right there. You can send it one on the internet or you can text us your prayer request or send an email. Uh, So we have a whole prayer team that is just ready, right? They're just waiting to see that request and, and to go into prayer with you. Amen. Amen. Friends, would you stand to your feet so I can speak a blessing over you today? Praise God. May the love of the Father And the grace of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of that Holy Spirit be with you this week in this world that we live in. We depend on him so much. Amen? Amen. Grace and peace. Bye-bye.